0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today, we start the next part of our look at the British Empire. When I started looking at empire, I called it part of a world quake because of its global impacts and far-reaching consequences. We started with the philosophical issues around empires in general then zoomed in to the fledgling colonies on the Australian continent, followed by a deep dive into Tasmania's convict and settler history, including the early genocide against the native peoples. If you are new to the podcast, you can start with today's episode easily, since it starts the next series on empire in Africa in the 1830s and 1840s. But you can also jump back... To episodes 32 and 33 to get the background and find out about the early colonialism in the Australias. Before we get going, I want to say thank you, all my lovely patrons, for your support on Patreon. It is brilliant and keeps the research materials flowing. Now that Covid is beginning to come under control, I'm hoping to get more members' content up and finally dispatch the mugs for the higher tier patrons. I'd also like to welcome new patron, respectable governess, Brady Soul. I hope you enjoy the bonus episodes. I'd also like to thank Anne Watman for her generous PayPal donation and her lovely emails. Listener emails are always a treat. So if you ever want to get in touch, just drop me a line. I'm also hoping that next month I can get out another episode, well, mini out on the Victorian Dress series possibly about men's beards, before we cover women's clothing. There are some lovely listener reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank Brooke Waldy, 5 Star, quote, Age of Victoria podcast, fine storytelling. I need to take some more long drives in the country to catch up on all the episodes of this excellent podcast. I'm afraid I'm late to the party, but better late than never. Obviously well researched. The storytelling reaches deep into Victorian and Empire history and tells it in such an entertaining way. I've been particularly enjoying my local history as the podcast tells the story of colonial Australia. We will return to Australia again in future, but for now I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Next up is another five star review from Danimong three hundred three USA Wonderful, terrific. Captivating and addictive. I love this podcast. Chris casts a thorough look at events and at the people involved. Those who know a bit of history are condemned to hear podcasts done by those who know more and enjoy the process. To top it off, Chris's delivery is warm and pleasant. Many, many thanks. End quote. It's very kind of you. There's a five star review from S-Y-S-K, African Enthusiast Fan, USA, quote, interesting and pleasant, end quote. Another five star from Daspensers slash S-C-S, USA, quote, very well written and researched, with a lot of personality in the podcast, brackets in a good way, that keeps the show interesting and fun. Can't wait to hear more about the East India Trading Company, and colonization end quote, ah uh, yes, the honourable company in a way, I'm surprised we haven't touched on it yet, but it is certainly coming. finally, the lovely folks at the ancient and esoteric order of the Jackalope have given me this very flattering write-up on their blog. quote there are so many great podcasts about British history, but one of our favorites is Chris Fernandez Packham's Age of Victoria his episode about the philosophy of empire is one of the best explorations of the concept of empire and what it means for everyone involved, rulers and subjects alike. That one episode alone is probably the best episode of any podcast released in the last year. End quote. That's so kind and I'm really glad it was helpful and enjoyable. You should check them out. They've got a great website at orderofthejackalope.com. And you can also listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. I'm glad I've got happy listeners as we've got years of podcasting ahead of us. Now, talking about South Africa is an incredibly complex topic and not one that stays in easy national boundaries. Those are mostly modern impositions anyway. I'm going to try to give you a really high level summary about Africa but there's too much to talk about in one show. I apologise if this summary overlooks some crucial and exciting things about Africa, but it is just going to give you just enough information to understand the early Victorian era in South Africa, including early conflict with the Boers and even the Zulus. I'm not doing the History of Africa podcast, no matter how tempting. As the obvious starting note, Africa is a continent, not a country. Africa has never been a unified political entity any more than the continent of the Americas has. In the modern age, it is correct to divide it into nation states, but in the pre-imperial era, for the most part it wasn't. There were a few nation states on the Mediterranean coast or in instances like the Zulus, who created a nation under a formal kingship model that was a nation with loose borders. It is though very, very important that you put aside a lot of the stereotypes of Africa, some of which were invented by the European imperial powers. So no, not all of Africa is a desert or a jungle. Not all of the natives of Africa were superstitious primitives who wore grass skirts and lived in huts. No. Africans weren't too primitive to build stone structures. Egypt was one of the great civilizations of the world in antiquity. Whilst for a time the Kingdom of Carthage rivaled Imperial Rome, some of the kingdoms in Africa during the European Middle Ages were every bit the equal of the European kingdoms in terms of sophistication, art and wealth. The Empire of Mali Kingdom Stretching from the Atlantic coast in what is now modern-day countries of Senegal, Southern Mauritania, Mali, Northern Burkina Faso, Western Niger, the Gambia, Guinea-Bassau, Guinea, the Ivory Coast, and as far as North Ghana, initially composed of tribes and competing city-states, it grew into a vast empire in the Middle Ages with striking architecture immense gold reserves and a university that was of international quality. The Ascomite Empire straddled Ethiopia, Eritrea and across the Gulf to Yemen. The empire converted to Christianity but came into conflict with the Byzantine Empire then the Persians. It was also involved in sheltering early Muslim refugees during the first Hegira despite being a Christian kingdom. It had a system of coinage and international trade routes that stretched from Egypt to India and even China between the 5th and 14th centuries AD and practiced a mixed agricultural and pastoral system. There was also significant migration of Muslim Arabs into parts of East Africa from 750 AD to the 1500s AD, including unsuccessful jihads. Into Ethiopia and Somalia by Hadrami Muslims starting in 1490. Portuguese activities in the Persian Gulf increased Christian Muslim tensions, and Muslim fighters from the unsuccessful campaign often spread out across the African coast rather than risk conflict with the Portuguese. Some historians believe there is good evidence of some Muslim influences. Stretching into the eastern coastal regions of Madagascar, the British Empire in Africa is therefore more complex to deal with than it was in the Australias. In the Australias, the British was essentially the only Europeans to conquer and settle the various territories. The actual continent was vast, and indigenous populations, whilst not homogenous, often geographically spread. politically simple in terms of organisations and institutions. Indigenous peoples in the Australians were highly adapted to the environment and tribal organisation was kept loose with plenty of oral history and kinship ties. In Africa, things were different. Things could be politically complex. Alliances shifted and territories changed hands as Indigenous peoples waged wars or were displaced by newcomers from other parts of Africa. Please put any Disney-style circle of life, pristine paradise images out of your head. Africa was complex and sometimes violent, because that's how humans often are. Resources were exploited, animals hunted, trees felled, politics and wars conducted, economies created, diplomacy and trade carried out. In 2000 BCE, the Bantu people began their waves of migration from central West Africa, displacing people and occupying land as they spread south and east. The impacts of this migration were still being felt as late as the 18th century. I'm sure I hardly need to point out that Bantu is a descriptive label used by Western anthropologists and linguists, and not a term that anyone from the group would have used, since it encompasses a diverse range of people, including the Bantu-Arabic merger language that forms Swahili. It is really a language group, not an ethnic group, and so if you add the languages from the Bantu family together, you can be talking about between 440 to 680 different languages, with hundreds of millions of speakers. That means that the migration was probably in a large part cultural. Like languages, the terrain and climate in Africa were more varied than the Australia's, the indigenous peoples' more densely populated areas, and political systems were significantly more complex. Parts of North and Central Africa had a history of extremely sophisticated kingdoms And even empires. Conflict, whether between tribes, families, settlements, kingdoms, or even empires, was long standing. This, in turn, often led to dynastic feuds or even the displacement of tribes from their original land and their migration into areas controlled by other peoples, who often responded with significant force. Violence in the continent did not begin when the Europeans arrived. European incursion into North Africa and the Eastern Gulf States with their long history of complex kingdoms and connections to the Islamic world was difficult if not impossible for the early Christian kingdoms looking to expand. Eastern Africa had substantial elements of Arab culture and population influences. It is possible to separate the continent into various climate zones too, which sometimes match reasonably well with the broad language groups. On top of this complexity came the beginnings of various European incursions on the west coast, which opened up a lucrative slave trade for the Europeans, and for many powerful African tribes who took the opportunity to sell defeated rivals into slavery slavery of course already existed in Africa and there were a lot of notable wars to capture slaves by African rulers in the various areas. Women were particularly valued targets by tribes seeking perhaps extra field labour and in the north of the continent on the east Muslim expansion in the middle ages had been consolidated into powerful kingdoms on the Mediterranean coast which had raided Europe for slaves and treasure. There was also a significant eastbound slave trade, as African women were in high demand in the Middle and Far East. Many kingdoms on the eastern coasts of Africa also had long-standing connections to the Islamic states, including trading slaves for firearms. And they were key stopping points in the Persian Gulf, for materials from India, China and Java. So they were often aware of the various European powers and had had contact with them through trade routes. Western Africa seemed to be far weaker and easier for the Europeans to exploit combined with being closer and right on the course of the European navigators as the medieval states with an Atlantic seaboard started to push out of europe and past madeira i just need you to remember that far from being undiscovered territories before the europeans arrived many parts of africa had already seen waves of successive migration these waves were often from indigenous peoples invading other indigenous peoples territories and forcing them out or there were invasions from ancient greece then the roman empire and the eastern territories or even persia then later Muslims, before the European Age of Discovery, initiated the many European contacts. Many powerful African rulers were astute at statecraft and exploited opportunities against rival kingdoms, sometimes using European settlers as tools to gain an edge over their rivals or in dynastic struggles. Many rulers were especially especially keen on getting access to firearms. The Portuguese had kick-started the transatlantic slave trade with other European nations and African rulers excitedly getting in on the act in Central and Western Africa. To add to the confusion, the Dutch settled the Cape region of South Africa before the British and they imported over 10,000 slaves from Malaysia from whom the Cape Malay population are descended. They also attempted to enslave some of the local Khoi, but the Khoi resisted, and the Dutch had to give up. Especially since the Koi were important providers of cattle and meat to their small, starter Dutch settlements. The British experience was therefore always going to be significantly different to their experience in the Australias. It would not only involve British politics, but also Dutch native peoples, other imperial outposts, the Royal Navy and the impact of the abolition of slavery. Since South Africa was an important stopping point for ships en route to Australia or the Pacific and Far East, you would assume that it was an early priority for the British. You would further assume that it would be a carefully planned venture, supported by diplomacy at the highest levels, mixed with a judicious mix of military force and economic strategy. This assumption was not grounded in reality. As is almost a national trait of the British, it all appeared efficient and well planned in high sight. whilst in reality it was a chaotic mix of planning, opportunism, blind luck, incredible incompetence, crushing the underdog wherever possible and relying on the supreme professionalism of the common British soldier and his naval counterpart to make good the often disastrous decisions from those in charge. Let's start our journey in South Africa with the land itself. After all, that's what the British were initially interested in, specifically the Cape of Good Hope. This was the most southerly point of the African continent. It had to be sailed around to get into the Indian Ocean and onwards to India, the Pacific, China and the East Indies. The Cape was not an easy paradise. It was a small piece of land that jutted out in a curve where the Atlantic Ocean met the Indian Ocean. Here were some of the most dangerous conditions for sailors on Earth. It was originally named the Cape of Storms in the 1480s by Portuguese explorer Bartholomew Dias, but the Portuguese King John II. We named it the Cape of Good Hope for better PR. According to NASA's Earth Observatory, quote, the waters near the Cape, where the Atlantic and Indian Oceans meet, can be treacherous for ships. The warm Agulhas Current from the east runs into the cold Benguela Current from the northwest. Dangerous waves from these currents have caused many shipwrecks. According to folklore. These shipwrecks led to the legend of the Flying Dutchman, a ghost ship doomed to sail on the oceans forever after being lost in a severe storm near the Cape. Offshore, the traverse and longitudinal wind patterns on False Bay are caused by the strong winds blowing along the South African coast. The winds will blow in different directions depending on the time of year. During the summer, September to March, the winds will blow in from the southeast in winter, May to September. They blow from the northwest. The winter winds tend to bring in moisture, cold fronts, and stormy weather from the Atlantic. Quote. Probably, only Drake's passage and Cape Horn, round the southern tip of South America, down into the Furious Fifties, is more dangerous for shipping. The cape is narrow, rocky and very inhospitable as is the peninsula it is on it is like a mountainous knife stabbing out into the fury of the sea so when the europeans decided to settle they created cape town on the western coast before reaching the cape itself the first arrivals were the dutch in the 16th century they quickly noticed the immense potential of the area which includes 1,800 miles of beaches in the South African area. Sadly, there were no written records of the history of the area before contact, as the pre-contact peoples didn't use a written language. In 1652, Jan de Rybrek, an official of the Dutch East India Company, founded the settlement of Cape Town in the shadow of the beautiful Table Mountain It is one of the most recognisable mountains in the world. Two miles long, flat on the top and rising over 3,000 feet above sea level to tower over even the modern city. The mountain sometimes has a layer of cloud that settles on it, which is known as the tablecloth. Other mountains form a ring around the city site and it was blessed with a Mediterranean climate. It is and was an area of incredible beauty, with immense potential, a varied pattern of weather, plentiful fishing, and access to wonderful beaches. It seemed like a godsend to the Dutch, and they were rather baffled it hadn't been settled, farmed, and developed by the indigenous peoples. When the Dutch arrived, it was occupied by the Koikoi, who were divided into the peninsula Koy, Koy and the beach occupying groups called Strandlopers by the Dutch as well as the powerful Zahosa, further inland. The Dutch created a small castle which was a star fort rather than a medieval style castle and introduced European foods like cereal, grapes, groundnuts, apples and various citrus fruits all of which thrived. Honestly... If you had to pick a perfect spot for a city, you'd struggle to do better than Cape Town. A good harbour, beaches, plenty of space, great climate, rich soil, mountains, easy access to the Atlantic and Indian oceans. The earliest Dutch settlers quickly worked out that the valleys near Table Mountain were perfect for vineyards and some of the old 17th century Dutch colonial winery buildings remain in use to this day. There were also plentiful whale populations, which provided essential oils, and would have been viewed as another huge benefit. As a bonus, just five miles off the coast was Robin Island, that was just perfect as a prison. If you are wondering how such a fabulous site was overlooked by the indigenous peoples, well it wasn't. Robin's Island was almost certainly occupied by various groups of human settlers throughout prehistory although by the 16th century it was uninhabited except for the large penguin, seal and tortoise populations. The island was dangerous to shipping with the first recorded wreck in 1611. Passing European ships started a custom of leaving sheep on the island in case anyone got shipwrecked in future. Eventually as is inevitable, the sheep population grew and as the Dutch began to clash with the local Khoi on the mainland, the island became a food production and storage centre to support the mainland colony. The Dutch soon selected four lucky men to live on the island and keep farms. They were later joined by soldiers and Dutch-owned slaves. It's a curious quirk of geography that such a tiny Empty, flat island actually provided an essential form of support to the future of imperialism in South Africa. Ironically, it was on this island that brilliant linguist Wilhelm Bleek met San Bushman in the prison in 1857. After studying their language and that of other native speakers, he would go on to do intensive research. He noticed the common use of the word muntu to mean person and based on linguistic structures he knew that for the plural it would convert mu to ba giving bantu as the word for people and the name for the whole language families. Hopefully this is giving you an idea of the staggering complexity of the continent and South Africa the huge variety of kingdoms and tribes, and the endemic conflict that already existed before the European colonisers arrived. You are probably wondering why we are spending so much time on the Dutch period still. The Dutch are actually key to the history of South Africa and would also heavily impact the activities of the Victorians in the area. The Dutch would soon work out that a lot of South Africa outside the Mediterranean strip on the western coast was actually desert but the pushing further inland towards modern day Namibia, Botswana and into Zimbabwe led to a transformation of arid desert to step fertile lands and forests. They also knew that when the Mediterranean strip ran out as it travelled east along the coast there was a sweep of potentially productive forest that ran up the coast of the continent till it hits Somalia. The eastern coast of the Cape was very different from the west. Quote, for historians an obvious and fundamentally important theme is the uneasy, edgy, indeterminate and complex identity of the eastern Cape as borderland, as frontier. This liminal identity is rooted in physical geography and climate. Offshore, the confluence of the Benguela cold water flows and wind systems with the warmer waters of the Mozambique current is the geophysical basis for its reputation as the wild coast. Consequently, the eastern cape straddles two rainfall zones. Winter rainfall peters out grudgingly somewhere west of Fish River. To its east, rains come in spring and summer with increasingly reliable rainfall levels as the trans nudges towards the subtropical east coast. And because of this transition, this blurred divide between the different patterns of precipitation, the region as a whole is subject to climatic unpredictability, ecological diversity, and variable population capacities. This physical divide had profound implications for the human geography and history of the region. Hunters and herders, the Bushmen and the Khoi, had long traversed the more arid territory of the Karoo and the southwestern coastal reaches, and from the 14th and 15th centuries, the Zahosa clans began to test the westerly limits of the 500mm annual rainfall zone running their herds, sowing their crops, establishing larger-scale polities and denser settlement, Hunters, herders and mixed farmers traded, fought and intermarried. The extent of their interaction can be traced in the linguistic borrowings and in the genetic makeup and pigmentation of some Zahosa clans. That's from Lessons on the Frontier aspects of Eastern Cape history by historian Colin Bundy. Dutch farmers in the 1700s began to migrate inland out of the control of the Dutch East India Company and Dutch government, both of which reluctantly sent small forces to support the migrating farmers who were called trek boars in Dutch. This should have seen them wiped out, but the Dutch something else besides fruit and European farming technology. Yes, our old friend the musket which for all its shortcomings was still a heavy calibre firearm and very sturdy especially in the dry African climate. Initially the trekkers came under attack from sand people using blow darts but they soon clashed with the Zahusa, who feared the loss of cattle lands to the farmers. Before long The Dutch were involved in a series of complex wars which included the development of the famous Boer commando squads, the practice of lagering the wagons and a myriad of shifting alliances as various indigenous tribes allied with or attacked the Dutch depending on which way the political wind was blowing. Many tribes recruited Dutchmen to fight rival tribes. These early conflicts are summed up as the first three frontier wars, or the Zahosa Wars. And broadly speaking, the Dutch did rather badly. But these weren't full-on European-style wars with uniformed combatants, as we would understand them. In total, there would be around nine of these frontier wars, until the British destroyed Zulu resistance in the 1870s. Unfortunately for the Dutch, they were conquered by Napoleon during the Napoleonic Wars and added to the French armies. That immediately meant that the British used their naval supremacy to strike Dutch overseas assets. And the British seized South Africa in 1795-1803. till 1803. Then again in 1806, after the Napoleonic Wars, Cape Town was formally given to the British as part of a peace settlement. You can see the problem here. The British regarded the land as belonging to the Dutch, as they owned it, and therefore it was legally transferred to the British. Therefore, they could move British settlers in, and the existing Dutch had to follow British laws. That's pretty standard for both property law and international diplomacy of the time. The British didn't see themselves as occupying native land, it was Dutch land won by right of war. Many of the Dutch couldn't put up with British rule and began further migrations. The Dutch East India Company kept redrawing the boundaries of the settlement as Dutch boers attempted to get more farmland by moving eastward towards the wetter, rain-filled regions. In many ways, the Cape area was being invaded twice, once by white colonial settlers from the south and also by migrating and conquering native tribes from the north like the Zahosa with the old nomad and hunter-gatherer groups being squeezed in the middle. Essentially, two sets of invaders were clashing over unclaimed land that was used as migratory ranges by nomadic populations. Just before the Fourth Frontier War, a neutral ground in Zerbel had been agreed with many Zahosa tribes and repeatedly violated by both sides. The Dutch settlers kept getting massacred and kicked out, only to return and enact reprisals. Eventually, the Zahosa violated the neutral zone and settled en masse in the area. The British Cape government dispatched Lieutenant Colonel Collins to tour the area and make recommendations. He came back and stated that the Zahosa were in violation of the peace treaty and were occupying the neutral zone and should be expelled. Then the area should be densely populated by European settlers, with a new depopulated neutral zone established. The Cape Governor, the Earl of Caledon, was not pleased or keen on this policy option, and preferred non confrontation with a, quote, view to preserving what we possess, end quote. On the Zahosa side... They were confident that they were in a secure position and in any event, they weren't worried about the Dutch farmers who had failed to do them significant military damage in any previous war and who seemed easy to deal with. Unfortunately for them, when it finally came, the British military response was swift and devastating. Lieutenant Colonel Graham gathered a mixed race force of British troops, Dutch commandos, and native tribes opposed to the Zahusa. Colonel Graham was actually a tough guy. He was born in Scotland, joined the army with a commission, saw various service, including a stint with the Austrian army and fighting against the French in Italy. His talent was obvious, and by 1806, he was a major in the light infantry and instrumental in taking the colony. His undoubted military abilities were complimented by his gift with languages. He spoke Gaelic, English, Dutch, German, Italian, and French. He was considered an inspiring leader and was promoted to lieutenant colonel and told to raise a regiment of Khoikhoi and other natives, which was known as the Cape Regiment and was officered by British officers. In many ways, it was like a Roman auxiliary legion and was considered extremely high quality thanks to Graham. Eventually, their British policy of non-confrontation was clearly untenable. Zahosa tribes continued to press settlers in the supposed neutral zone borders, and finally conducted a raid killing a member of a cavalry patrol. Attempts to find the killer were unsuccessful, and a part of the British force, under a Dutch leader, Coyen, met a Zahosa chief, and Lemba and his forces. The chief informed the Dutch commander that he had conquered the neutral zone with his spear in war and he wasn't giving it up to Dutch farmers. The Zahosa were the preeminent power in the region but the term Zahosa was more of an umbrella. They frequently had civil wars or intertribal conflicts. They had seen little about the Dutch to really impress them and They had overwhelming numbers. Graham's entire force was only 30 Royal Artillery Gunners, 21 Light Dragoons, his 400 men from the Cape Regiment and 350 Dutch civilians. The Zahosa are thought to have had around 20,000 people in the area, though that figure must have included a significant number of non-combatants. Even if the Zahosa fighting force was only half that, say 10,000, they had enough warriors to simply crush the 850 people in the British force. And let's be honest, if Graham suffered any kind of setback, a lot of his force would simply desert anyway. From the Zahosa point of view, this must have looked like a half day's work against another group of these farmers who hardly knew how to fight then a victory celebration. Can you imagine how they felt? Strong, confident, used to fighting and used to the environment. Above all, they would have believed in the inevitability of their victory. But they simply did not and could not understand what Graham represented. He was an example of a professional military, not a Dutch farmer with a gun. He was a battle-hardened commander and skilled leader of men. He had the latest European weapons available, some cavalry, and the European habit of writing down plans based on previously written plans that evaluated his enemy. He set out detailed instructions for how to deal with the Zahosa. A reserve was set up, pickets established, extra provisions and ammunition brought in by Royal Navy. Troops were told not to enter forest terrain where they risked ambush and outposts where exposed parts of the force were to immediately withdraw in the face of an overwhelming enemy force with defensive redoubts created. He was also careful to guard against flanking movement to his east and carefully planned rear attacks on Zahosa forces when they attempted night attacks. Plus he knew that even if he lost the British government would be forced to send reinforcements to the Cape. It was too valuable a military asset to lose, especially to a native force. Graham was establishing a model for colonial campaigning in Africa, where often vastly outnumbered British forces would use preparation, discipline, logistics and quick movement to bring superior firepower Against small parts of their numerically superior foes, then secure lines of advance or fortified positions to fall back to before repeating the process. The goal was to overawe the enemy, break his will to resist. Not that this might have seemed apparent to the long suffering British Tommy. As always, he would be wearing his uncomfortable red uniform, probably feeling isolated disoriented by the strange landscape, hot, underfed and probably suffering periodic bouts of dysentery. Not that a minor, even major case of diarrhoea would stop him having to fight. So some British soldiers would have fouled their uniform trousers whilst they fought because when the bullets fly but a soldier's bowels are infected it could be unpleasant. There were also the assortment of dangerous creatures including intestinal parasites, and occupational injuries galore. Musket barrels could become scorching hot under the African sun, so men could give themselves fearsome burns handling their weapons. Or even worse, overheated barrels could misfire. Sunburn and heat exhaustion made weapon handling harder, while muskets could misfire or jam in the heat. Soldiers Could expect serious sunburn, especially if forced to take cover in the summer sun. Much to the shock of the Zahosa, they suffered in some minor skirmishes. Then found Graham had managed a swift march and combined his marching columns for an attack on the Zahosa stronghold at Zakoma. The attack involved disciplined volley fire into the bushes that sheltered the Zahosa warriors. Whilst only 14 were killed, They had to retreat and lost 2,500 of their essential cattle. That was their main source of wealth, food and even materials for shields. On the basis of this success, Graham asked for reinforcements from the Cape and was sent 200 regular British soldiers from the 60th regiment. He now had enough men to pull off something even more audacious. He upped the tempo of his skirmishing which was extremely impressive when you consider he was on enemy territory, which they knew like the back of their hands, and he was fighting their style of war in a hot climate whilst he was vastly outnumbered. Frankly, in military terms, he was more akin to a mini Hannibal than an average colonel. He conducted a 12-day running battle across deep ravines, sweeping slopes and deep valleys, Often filled with rocks and thickets of thorns. He continued to break Zahosa resistance and seize hundreds more of their cattle. By the end of 12 days, the bewildered and beaten Zahosa were done, and the 20,000 odd Zahosa had evacuated the drill zone. From the British and Dutch point of view, it was a stunning success. It also foreshadowed the power that the British Empire could bring to bear, showing The typical creativity of the British military, Colonel Graham established a town called Grahamstown. It was a garrison frontier town to nail down a part of the Eastern Cape. Much like every part of the imperial frontier, there was always a bit of territory nearby needed a garrison. And like Rome or Napoleon before it, Britain would slowly conquer vast areas in self-defence. Some scholars point out the pattern was actually strikingly similar to Westward's expansion in the USA, where authorities attempted to draw lines of settlement and made treaties with the tribes outside, only for US settlers to flood across the lines. They then ignored the government laws and treaties, but demanded military protection from understandably angry native tribes. Not that things... Stayed peaceful for very long. There was a Zahosa civil war that started the Fifth Frontier War in 1818. The British were quickly dragged in due to a mutual defence pact they had signed with one of the factions. To add to the messy situation, one faction of the Zahosa were led by a prophet named Makanda, who had promised he could turn the bullets of the enemy to water. He gathered 10,000 Zahosa and attacked the British at Grahamstown. The town was still tiny, with only thirty buildings, a fort, and a three hundred and fifty strong garrison from various regiments, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wiltshire. The prophet sent a message to Wiltshire to say he would take the town and then breakfast with Wilson as his prisoner. Despite being outnumbered by nearly thirty to one, Wiltshire sent back the pretty ballsy reply everything will be ready for you on your arrival end quote. The Prophet's forces made a mass attack but this time not only were the British own professional soldiers they also had proper artillery and were reinforced by 130 Boer snipers and coy allies. The battle was a complete disaster for the Prophet's forces. He lost 1,000 dead compared to the British three killed. His power and influence were broken and he had to surrender. He was imprisoned on Robbins Island and then drowned in a botched escape attempt. Grahamstown was reinforced by more British settlers in 1820 and deemed a vital military asset for maintaining control of the Cape region. Ironically, today it has been renamed Macanda to atone for colonial atrocities which is an odd choice since the Battle of Grahamstown was in no way linked to any atrocities was not in Zahosa land and Makanda was an abject military failure. It is more likely due to the use of Grahamstown as part of the Afrikaans white supremacist revisionism of the 1960s, as the Battle of 1819 is pretty unknown outside of history students of the Cape and us podcasters. Okay, we are going to take a break there. Next time, we will pick up after the Battle of Grahamstown, and cover some of the historical controversy around it and Colonel Graham. We will also look at the life of the settler and introduce that great imperial enemy, the Zulus. I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey. Okay, thanks for listening everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at podcast. At gmail.com Follow me on Twitter At Age of Victoria Visit the website At www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com The show also has a Facebook page And a group Just search for Age of Victoria Don't forget to leave a review On Apple Podcasts Takes less time Than making a coffee If you want to support the show on Patreon There's a link in the show notes Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.